Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Blessed Palm Sunday to each and every one of you. We're going to worship the Lord this morning, and we ask that if you're able, please stand to your feet, and let's worship God together.
There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Let us be 
You may be seated. Well, good morning once again, and uh, welcome to La Jolla Community Church on Palm Sunday. We are so glad that you can join us for worship today. Now, on your, uh, on your way inside, you should have received a bulletin, and on the bulletin, you have a prayer card and a connect card. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we encourage you to take a second and fill out that Connect card. It says, Get Connected With Us. Um, and then also on the opposite side, we have a prayer card that says, Let Us Pray For You. Uh, also, we encourage you to take a moment. Uh, let us know what's on your, on your heart uh, so that our prayer team can pray for you over the next week. And uh, with that, I'd love to invite up Pastor Steve Murray. Hey, thank you. Hey, well, so how do you think the locker room felt last night before the game? Imagine being in the locker room with all those San Diego students, student athletes, actually, excuse me, NBA players who are still in college, uh, <laughs> fully represented by somebody to market all their, you know. Um, but how do you think those young men were feeling in the locker room before the game? Can you, do you, have you ever been in that situation where you're, you're somewhere doing something? Uh, it could be super serious. Um, it could be a legal deposition. Have you ever been deposed? Thankfully, I've been deposed twice, and it wasn't about me. So I walk in there like, yeah, baby. And I had so much fun in the deposition, much to the annoyance of the people deposing me, because I wasn't goofing off, I was just so free and confident to answer their questions and not to be intimidated by them. Because part of the, the strategy, part of the secret sauce and the superpower of, of any adversary is to intimidate. If I was being deposed because I had been accused of something, I would have a very different feel. I'd probably walk in very nervous and think, okay, are they going to try to set me up with some trick question or something? What's your name? Hey, you know, kind of a thing. Have you ever been in a play uh, and you have a major part in the play and you hear the opening music and the place is packed and pretty much you're related to every, everybody there who's in the room that's packed it out, maybe. But the place is packed and, and you know you're going to be coming on making your debut. How did you feel? Uh, it's the big T-ball championship. <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter the venue. You're... you're Five years old, and you're walking up, and you go, and the little kid, if they knew enough history, they go, I know how the babe felt. <laughs> he points to center field, right? This idea of the anxiety and the second guessing and that possible imposter syndrome kicking in, you know, I really don't deserve to be here. This is such a fluke. Uh, those guys from Florida, they probably know what's going on, but man, I don't know. Or, you know, the, this is the other one. This is what every show like, um, well, any, any show that's a competitor show on TV sets up the contestants because there's always one person they pick to, who, who they interview right before they have the final winner and they go, hey, what, are your, what do you think your chances are? I've nailed it. I own this thing. And you go, oh, that guy's going down, 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 down. What do you think it was like in the locker room? Because once they came out of the locker room, there was no going back the same way. And then you have to pretty much be committed to whatever was going to happen on that court. Thankfully, uh, for those guys from SDSU, uh, 
It was the most wonderful experience, probably, of their life in terms of accomplishing something great. You can guarantee to the very end of their life, what will they be talking about? It'll be that. It'll, be, it'll work its way into some conversation somewhere. On any introduction for the rest of their life, it'll be included, oh, and you know, he was on the... I have a friend who was in the Little League World Series, and he still does that. <laughs> I've known him for 50 years, and uh, he goes, hey, did I ever tell you about that? Yeah, 900 times you told me. I, I know a guy here in San Diego, uh, he's very involved in all kinds of things in the city. I, I guarantee you, I could win so much money from all of you here if I said... I bet you, if you meet him somewhere, in, within the first couple of minutes, he will tell you he went to Princeton University. <laughs> Everybody I know who knows him, if you're talking to him, they go, the guy's a character, isn't he? And I'll say, yeah. Do you know he went to college? And you look at you like, what? Hey, of course I do. He went to Princeton University. My point is, when you're committing to something, and if it's big enough, uh, you have that moment when you think, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I've done everything I can to prepare for this moment. I'm committed to following through with this opportunity. But everything to this point has been anticipating it, planning, preparing, getting toward it. And now I'm here. It's right now. It's that moment when somebody says, and you hear it, my water broke. And it was like, it's here. It's happening. There's no turning back. Uh, here we are on what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday didn't exist until we got our hands on it <clears throat> because this was simply the, the uh, opening up of uh, Passover in Jerusalem. And all these people from all these places coming into Jerusalem uh, to worship God. <clears throat> uh, there's three big feasts every year uh, in, in uh, Jewish tradition. There's, there's other smaller celebrations, but in the fall, there's Rosh Hashanah, that's the head of the year, New Year. Uh, and and uh, there's also Yom Kippur, Yom Day, uh, Kippur Atonement, the Day of Atonement, when the nation confesses their sins. Those are some big holidays. Uh, there's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is simply a fancy way of saying we build little stick structures and live in them for a few days to remember what it was like for our forebears to be camping out in the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. Uh, and Passover, of course, being the major one, because that's, of course, this, the um, epic moment where Moses, uh, confronted by God, and, and God says, I know you're a discredited former prince of Egypt, now you're a full-time shepherd, that you will take my message of uh, redemption and liberation of my people to Pharaoh, and you'll let him know, in no uncertain terms, that he shall let my people go. And Moses is like, you're kidding me. Me? Me? me, 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 me? I, I stutter. Send my b -b brother Aaron. Fine, I'll send both of you, but you're going. Okay, what shall I tell them? Whom shall I tell them sent me? Because my name doesn't get me in at the door anymore. The guy behind the rope doesn't open it when I show up. He said, tell them I am sent you. The holy name of God. I am. Um, Popeye picked it up. I am who I am, right? But I am. And that, that name Yehovah, it's four letters. It's called the Tetragrammaton, fancy name for letter, Greek word for four letters. And out of those four letters you get a phrase, and he who was, and he who is, and he who will be. 
And so he says, tell them I am. I am sending you. And so you know the rest of the story. If you don't go back and read it in the Exodus, it's phenomenal. Uh, Pharaoh is confronted by Moses. He, he hedges. He ends up experiencing plagues on his people. And finally, he agrees to let them go only after the angel of death sweeps over the land and takes the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But to prepare for that moment, uh, the is- Israelites were instructed to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and to slaughter that perfect lamb and to take the blood from that lamb and put it across the top and the sides of their door. So here you can imagine they're, they're taking some, some bush and dipping it in the blood and they're making a sign that the angel of death would pass over their home. <clears throat> and after that horrible event for Egypt, um, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, 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 go. Take what you need and go. And of course then he changes his mind and he creates another tragedy for his own people. But that, that moment is the moment for Israel. There's no moment more important than that moment for Israel. The Passover is everything to Israel. Even the giving of the law is only possible because of the Passover. It was God who redeemed his people and then he instructed his people, of course. So here you have... Um, you know, generations and generations and generations of family memory. It's in their DNA. No matter where I live, how far it is from Israel, from Jerusalem itself, I will at some point, if every year I, I hope, but at some point I will make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, it's very powerful, uh, very celebrative. There's a deep sense of lament, uh, coupled with a deep sense of, of thanksgiving and gratitude to God. So here it is, that's the setting. <clears throat> One more little layer in this setting, in, in, the, in the era that it happened, there is the temple. It's, had, it's been rebuilt it's in its glory. Everybody who comes up over the hill out of the desert sees this magnificent temple. Right next to it is a fortress built right on the side of it, butting up right next to it called the Fortress Antonia. The Romans control the city from that point. Their main group of soldiers are at Caesarea on the coast, 30 miles away, and scattered around the country because the country is a tinderbox. There are all these little things happening uh, <clears throat> that the Romans are concerned will blow up into a giant war, which it did. 40 years later, it did, and the entire city was leveled. And within Israel, there's all these forces competing for power. The people who control the temple, the Sadducees, the people who control the people's minds and the scripture, uh, misusing that authority, the Pharisees. You have people who are saying, let's just take them down right now, the zealots. Uh, they were assassins who said, oh, we've done everything we can, we've got to resort to violence. It's the only way that we'll overcome this oppressive regime from Rome and the oppressive regime over our own people, from our people. Some of them said, no, that's not a spiritual answer. Let's take a whole lot of priests and people and move down right by the Dead Sea. They call themselves the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. And they created a community called Qumran. That was just the name of it, a little interesting place by the sea. And Dead Sea is a dead place. So you go to Death Valley and create a utopian community in August. By the way, do you know who goes to Death Valley in August? Germans and British people. At Furnace Creek Inn, you cannot get a room in August. 
Uh, that's how crazy European people are. So beware when you're ever negotiating with them. This is how they think. If you want to tip the negotiation in your favor, go, look, I tell you what, two tickets to Death Valley, we'll make it a deal, right? So this was the explosive tinderbox of Jerusalem. Anything and everything could be an offense to somebody, an affront to somebody, an excuse to burn it down. And Jesus has made this epic three-year journey uh, through Israel, preaching, teaching, proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God through miracles, parables, teaching uh, that blows people's minds and convince them that he has authority. He's been confronted any number of times uh, in ways that would trick him and force him to say something that would be compromising. And so far it hasn't worked. And now he has turned his face, as they say in the scripture, towards Jerusalem. And as he did that, back up in Galilee to make that trek, everybody's going, you are the son of God, you are the Messiah. Except Peter said, yeah, but this idea of going to Jerusalem, very bad idea. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Um, Wow. Peter goes some hero. You're right, you're right. I am the son of God. It's a zero. Get thee behind me, Satan. So now they've made that trek, and they've, they've, on the way they, they came through Bethany, a little town over the hill from Jerusalem, and uh, they've healed Lazarus uh, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are so happy. And this is like a family reunion for them. And so now he's staying a little bit further to the top of the hill where you can see everything in the city, a place called Bethphage. It's a, Phage is figs. Beth means house, the house of figs, fig groves. <clears throat> and now they're going to go over the crest of that hill to a hill that's known about olives, the Mount of Olives, down a, a slope to a small valley with a stream called the Kidron Valley, all very small for us. When we, see, when we think of valley, we think of someplace in Montana or Idaho or Arizona or something. This is like a small ravine, but there's the city. It's so tense, it's so stressful, everybody is like on nerve endings, except for the pilgrims coming into the city. All they're seeing is, I finally made it, or I'm back. And it's so festive and so joyful. People are laughing and singing. Whole groups of people have traveled together. Some have just become groups on the way there as they've traveled. And so it's this massive movement. If you can imagine what happened after the game last night, the joy that filled that stadium uh, as as it spilled out into the streets, the incredible irrepressible joy. That's what you were experiencing on that day. And for a whole week as more people started to catch up, finally get into the city, culminating uh, on the Shabbat. Why am I telling you all this? Because if I don't tell you this, you have no sense of why it matters. It'll be like, oh, interesting, another irrelevant old event from the Bible. But again, tying it to what happened last night will help you give us, get a small sense of the intensity, the sheer joy. And on the other side, the, the sense of, oh no, we've come this far, now we've got to go back to Florida empty-handed. What all those people welcoming Jesus were feeling was what the San Diego crew was feeling. The people that owned the city and controlled the city, whether Romans or Sadducees or Pharisees or Zealots or whomever, they had the, the FAU, Florida Atlantic University experience. They're going, oh no. Now what? So, when, when the day drew near, uh, when the group drew near to Jerusalem, this is Matthew <clears throat> 21. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Okay, so here's Jesus with his moment of, Father, it's come to this. Now later, a week later, approximately five days, six days later, he's in this Garden of Gethsemane, just lower on the hillside from this place, saying, Lord, if, it, if, it's, your, if it's possible for this cup to pass me. But this was, the first, this was the first experience of that. Here it is. We're here. They're getting the donkey. I'm going to get on the donkey, and there's no going back. There's no going back. And Matthew tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And he's talking about the prophet Zechariah. Why can he just say to the prophet as if everybody will know? Matthew's writing to Jewish people. Luke is writing to an international group. Mark is writing to a particular group for a particular purpose, as is John. All four Gospels are harmonious in what they describe. They, they position the events slightly differently because they're trying to speak to a different group of people and trying to give them the best shot at understanding what's going on. So he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, as you all know, because every one of you Jews reading it would be have, are waiting or have waited for this to be fulfilled. And I'm telling you, and it is between the lines, right? I'm telling you, it has now been fulfilled. What the prophet said, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He, um, he's quoting Zechariah 9.9. That don't worry, Israel, your oppressor will be crushed. And the king is so powerful and so confident and so serene in his capacity to accomplish his mission, he does not need a big impressive horse. He'll take a, 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 a horse that has a baby and that's how he's going to show who he is in humility. Daughter of Zion simply refers to the city. Daughter of Zion is a way of saying Jerusalem. Uh, the highest point in Jerusalem is called Mount Zion. We call it Zion Hill. Mount Zion. Uh, the Zionist movement uh, was a movement to reclaim and replace and to repeople Israel with Jewish people. So all these Zion references uh, are simply about a place. Zion, the place, the hill around which the city is built. Daughters of Zion, just a way of saying the inhabitants of this, the city itself and everybody who comes to it. So the disciples, it says, went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, hence the palms being waved. Get out of my front yard, you know, kind of a thing. Where do they get these fronds? You know, it's like, hey, there's one. You know. uh, how many young suitors have said on the way to meet their date, oh, I should have got, hey, flowers right here. I got, um, so all these, all these palm fronds are being taken and everybody's like, ah, oh, fine, gotta take them, you know. And so now there's this, all these people waving whatever they have and, and yelling and screaming and out of humility and joy, they've laid down, they've laid down their cloaks even so the horse and the donkey and, and, and Jesus can cross them. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, this in Hebrew is, Hoshiana, save us now. Hoshiana, save us now. And it ended up becoming Hosanna, sometimes Hoshana. Hosanna, this is it, the day of salvation. Hey, what a great coincidence, it's Passover week. He comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now we get that phrase from Psalm 18. There's, there's these psalms 
um, that take you, like 15 psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent in the book of Psalms. And these Psalms of Ascent are what people would say or sing as they came into Jerusalem. So imagine with the cacophony of the crowds anyway, laughing and talking, and kids running around, and animals making noises, people would break out in, into one of these songs, and, and sometimes they would do it at a certain place. Sing this song here, this is where we our family sings, and somebody else is singing over there. And so here's Psalm 118. And son of David is simply a reference to Israel's Messiah king who would come from the, the line of David. Jesus is David's descendant, so this was an accurate response by the people. These people are filled with joy. I remember, the people contextually who are most concerned are filled with dread. Oh, this is not going well. We don't know if we can control this crowd. What if it goes crazy? What if they start breaking things? They took palm fronds from the guy's yard. What if they start breaking parts of the city? What if they start throwing stones at the Roman soldiers just because they can't stand it anymore? The people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as a conquering king, and he behaved like one. He behaved like the king. What kind of king? Not the one they expected to come in and take names and do damage. He came to save. So this king comes in and just his very presence calms the crowd. There's leaders who use the excitement of a crowd to do bizarre things. To upset social order. To, to create dangerous situations for people. And from their little tiny you know, voice uh, to their little tiny platform, they try to project an image of strength and power. This is not what Jesus was doing. Because the power that he brought was the power to unite people under a common purpose. Even some of those people who were his biggest detractors, whether in Rome or in the power structures of Jerusalem, were saying, maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe there's more than what we think we understand. And so Jesus is proclaiming again, teaching and demonstrating his rightful authority. He's not usurping anybody's authority. He's not projecting a false image. He's simply being who he is. And so it says, then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What is going on here? I just said he was bringing peace and right, but he was, he was a king. They said, who is this? And they, people say he's a prophet. Well, he's more than a prophet. He's all three things that Israel held in the highest regard. He's a prophet. He speaks the truth, brings justice. He's a priest. He understands how to rightly order worship before the living God and care for the people in the name of the living God. He's also the king. He sets things right because he has the authority and responsibility to do that. So now he immediately, the first thing he does is to go into the temple, a place of actual uh, oppression of people. Where were these money changers coming from? What were they doing, selling things? Well, it started out decades, 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 decades before because people from all over the known lands, whether it was when Alexander had his kingdom covering all of the known world or the Romans, People came from different language groups, different geographic, geopolitical places, but they were all Jews speaking different languages. To this day, you have Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. Uh, you have um, Jews that come from uh, uh, Spanish countries. You have people who come from Eastern countries, and they all have different names. Sephardic, Ashkenazic. And, and they, 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 
the language that they're speaking day to day is unintelligible to each other. So they have to speak Hebrew or Aramaic or maybe Greek. And they have different kinds of money. So what the temple people said was, look, let's bless our people, our brothers and sisters coming here. We'll make it possible for them to, to get what they need. If they bring a bunch of animals to sacrifice, we'll provide them, we'll sell it to them. We'll have a, a simple uh, currency that's fair. That had become usurious and oppressive. And so it was, a, it was absolutely a, a, a devastating way to disrespect the Lord and to discourage his people. Now we would say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It was a very big deal. Because you remember, remember, you're being oppressed by Romans, and then you get to Jerusalem, Mount Zion itself, and you're being oppressed by your own people who don't really care that you're being oppressed. Uh, there are pigeons to be plucked, and they're not the ones for sacrifice. So what does Jesus say? It's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah. The house of God. He's quoting uh, the psalmist. But you make it a den of robbers, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. What was, where does this come from? Well, the least, the last, and the, <laughs> the lost, you know, the people who were overlooked, realized something different is happening here. And all of a sudden, they have access to the temple. With nobody saying, do you have any money? What are you here to do? Where's your pigeon? Where's your goat? Where's your lamb? What, you know. So all of a sudden they're coming in. He's healing them. He's restoring the life of the temple. Ezekiel had a vision of, of what this would look like when the Messiah came. That from the temple itself a stream would start to flow. It would flow out the temple. And it would flow across the Kidron Valley. And it would flow out to the desert. And it would refresh the Dead Sea. That everything would bloom. Because the temple was alive. Because why was it alive? Because the Lord was in it. So these are these beautiful pictures that are happening here. And you can imagine the adrenaline, the oxytocin, you know, uh, the uh, endorphins that are flowing through all these people going, something up, and it's really beautiful. Something is up, and it's got God's fingerprints all over it. Well, let me say this. When people believe in a movement, they will be sacrificial in their support of it. Have you experienced this? Nobody had to say to those guys at, UCS, uh, at SDSU, hey, you got to practice. you got to come to practice. Are you kidding me? Well, let's practice all we can. Let's work harder. Right? Because they're motivated, intrinsically motivated. You know, extrinsic motivation is somebody saying, you have to do this because I can make you and coerce you. Intrinsic motivation is, I want to do that. I work for free. Just let me at it. Every movement starts as this movement where people say, I'm all in. And at some point, you have to have make rules and you have to have some structures because it gets too big and sloppy and unwieldy. And at that point, the institutional stuff is there to support the movement. What happens over time is we know this. Uh, Max Weber, the great father of sociology, explained this. Pretty soon, the, the institution and institutionalization and the administrative part of that movement overcomes and suppresses and oppresses and crushes the movement itself. And so, so now people figure out that, hey, I'm just being used and abused by a bunch of people who are accountable to no one and they're making a bunch of rules that I supposedly have to follow. And that's where movements die. Structures become corrupt. And it's the life cycle of structures. Now there's a life cycle of structures that they go through initial phases and they go through dips. And there's renewal. Healthy structures are constantly renewed. 
unhealthy structures eventually get to a point where they're so brittle and there's so much stress, either they collapse under their own weight or somebody comes in and just steps on it. Do you know how Rome was overtaken? A bunch of guys from the forest of Germany showed up and they knocked on the door and the door fell down. Literally, it was like a decaying pumpkin. When Alaric the Goth came to Rome in the 4th century, it fell down. And they all walked in and go, this is the Holy Roman Empire? And they were saying, these crazy Goths, these untutored, unshaved, unwashed people don't deserve to be here, except that all those guys coming in were baptized Christians. Because a bunch of missionaries had gone out and told them that the only way to live life was to follow Christ. And so they followed him to Rome and found out that there was no there there. So this is what's going on in Jerusalem. And so the crazy thing is this. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, this is what Matthew tells us, they saw and acknowledged these are wonderful things. And then there's children crying out the temple, you know, Hosanna to the son of David. Their response was they were indignant. Can you imagine, was there anybody in the stadium last night at the end of the game saying, this is horrible, this should never have happened. And they were indignant. And then you thought, what are you, oh, oh, the Florida Atlantic, you know, I I see Florida Atlantic University is a t-shirt you're wearing. Yeah, I guess you have a right to be indignant because you guys didn't win. In this case, the guys that were saying, we're waiting for the Messiah, you people are getting in our way. We're, We're doing Messiah here, okay? And who is this? Oh, it's the Messiah, according to the little kids. But the guys that are in charge are going, that can't be the Messiah. It's not on my calendar. Nobody checked with me. Uh, I don't see a permit. They didn't get a permit for this you know, gathering. You see the absurdity of it? They said, do you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read? This is Psalm 8-2 to them. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, babes you have prepared praise. They were indignant. But why? Why would they expect... What would they expect of the Messiah? How could it be any different? It's because he had no idea what the Messiah would look like. They become so focused on themselves and so petrified, so sclerotic, that they were walking dead people. Dead people walking, looking official. With a badge or a business card that said that they counted for something, that they were in charge. What did they expect of the Messiah? And I, I have to get real personal here. What do I expect? What do you expect? Because I get really, uh, I, as I was looking at this week, immersed in it, I, I started to have this horrible feeling that as I was pointing at these people going, how dare they be indignant? I'm going, oh, shoot. Oh, no. I am indignant. Oh, no. I'm one of them. Maybe you are too. When God isn't doing things according to your plan, your program, your expectations, your, your assumptions, your demands, you and I become indignant. That's not what I was planning on, Lord. I prayed this, you did that, or you didn't do it. This is what's happening in my life, not this. This is what's happening in the country, not that. And we become indignant. Can you resonate with this and relate to this at all? This notion that we at some point have our own version of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Now, often, that's, that's carefully detached from Scripture. It hovers just above the Bible, but it's actually not coming out of it. 
or we quote the Bible in the most generic way to make it sound like I can get away with anything under that generic description I just gave. God loves everybody is a generic description. True, transformational, it's at work here. But under that heading of God loves everything and everybody means I can do whatever I want until you read the scripture and you go, oh, I'm sorry, God is also righteous and just. He does not allow things that are not righteous and unjust. Out of his great love comes his great wrath. Not that he's in a bad mood, but wrath is the righteousness of God, so insanely intense and immense that it crushes unrighteousness. And that's why we need Jesus to come and say, God in the flesh is going to give us the life we, we need, the salvation we crave, so that we have the, the capacity to receive the righteousness of God and not be destroyed by it. We all like to think that if we were in the presence of God, it would be just awesome. Like me, in a deposition that I have nothing to do with other than to answer some questions that have no, you know, you know, no power over me. But if you put me in front of the Supreme Court and they announced, uh, we're having a special session, we've invited you because we've come to understand that you are so inconsistent in what you say and do. We'd just like to ask you a few questions. Can you imagine how horrible it would feel Maybe how bad it would smell right there in the, in the, in the room. I mean, you, you, you would not be able to hold it together. You'd just kind of want to dissolve. This is how small our God is. Uh, probably 60 years ago, uh, 70 years ago, a, a brilliant British theologian, a pastor, a guy named J.B. Phillips. Um, uh, he's, he influenced people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis because his kid was in junior high and didn't like reading the Bible because he couldn't understand the King James English. Now, J.B. Phillips is the Anglican priest and a theologian. He said, oh, shoot. So that night, and then became a project, he started taking the actual text of Scripture, and without distorting it, he just said, okay, is there another way to use this Greek word that sounds like modern-day English? So the J.B. Phillips version of the Bible emerged, and it was like for a generation of people in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the first Bible they ever read that they could understand. And at first people said, oh, he's, he's compromised the Bible, he's, he's eluded it. No, he's a scholar. He's actually lifting out the text in a way that we can see it. Powerful, powerful. It became kind of the national Young Life Bible. Young Life Bible. He wrote a book. He was so popular, they said, tell us more, tell us more. How do you see the problems in, in, in the body of Christ and in the movement of Christ um, worldwide. He goes, your God is too small. You have put God in a box. God in a box. You open the box. God, I'm telling you this is what I need. It's like the genie approach. Rub the, the lamp. God comes out. You tell him what you need. He goes back in. Your God is too small, he said. It became a runaway bestseller. He was in a priestly and prophetic mode when he wrote that book. Do you see what this means for you and me? This is not an ancient story that we get little kids to hold palm fronds and celebrate with brunch. It's a moment of truth and we say, oh my God, you love me that much. You've been so patient with me. You want me to thrive. You want me to prosper. You want me to grow. So much so that I get to celebrate it. I don't want to lose you in the midst of the palm fronds and the, and the, the, the pancakes. I want to see you as the God who cuts through all the BS that holds me back from being honest with me and everybody else. All this stuff that I carry because of my sin is such a heavy burden. All the assumptions I make because I can't control the world and it ticks me off and I'm indignant. This is the power of what Jesus was doing here. 
And so instead of seeing it as, I'm wanting to see this, instead of chief priests and scribes are going, Steve, and can I pick Dave? Uh, let me see, I'll go around the room. Well, John, okay, fine. Laura, maybe. And so it was as if the chief priests and scribes were telling Jesus, you're not the boss of me. Did you ever do that with your brothers and sisters? You're not the boss of me. I got it a lot because I was the eldest of five. And I was very clear, I am the boss. <laughs> Until my brothers got to be about this big, I was the boss. And then as I saw their, their rate of growth, I started to ease off on how I was bossing. I became a colleague. <laughs> Everything Jesus said and conveyed was this. Uh, well, actually, I am your boss. It's my temple. It exists to worship me. And these are my people that I care about. You're supposed to serve them. And I don't like this oppressive world any more than you do, and I have a plan for that, because I want to turn these oppressors into followers of Jesus. Like the centurion, who is one of my disciples. You're not the boss of me. Well, actually, I am. And remember, as I said, when God sent Moses to speak to Israel, Moses said, whom shall I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. The I am whom Israel was expecting had finally arrived, and they didn't even know him. What a week lay ahead. Nobody, nobody could see what that week was going to be like except for one person. And the final verse in this passage says this, and leaving them, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The only guy that knew what was going to happen that week turned and walked out of town. He kept coming back into town throughout that week. At one point, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, uh, you don't know what will leave you desolate. During that week, he confronted the scribes and Pharisees again, and he said, you have shut the door in the face of my people. And I've come to do something about that. Throughout the week, he did all kinds of things. Uh, we're going to celebrate that Good Friday. Certainly, we'll celebrate Easter. Uh, read those passages. I'm going to send you a read, think, pray. <clears throat> a little uh, devotional I send out every week. Read, read through these passages and, uh, and let, let the Holy Spirit renew and revive you. Not that you feel guilty, oh, I'm one of those, I'm indignant, but rather, hey, where does God want to meet me in the places that I'm indignant right now? Or indifferent, <laughs> that's even worse. Where does God want to meet me in those places where I am so distracted, I'm not even seeing that He is the Lord of this years, of this earth. And He's the Lord of me. So Lord Jesus, this is our prayer as we come to this table of Holy Communion, that we would have a renewed and revived understanding of who we are in you and who you are in us. That we would stop making you so small that you fit all of our natural expectations because we are simply uh, treating you like a puppet or a god in a box. That somehow we treat you like you're our concierge or our valet. That you're the person uh, picking up towels and making sure our, our hamburger and fries are delivered. Help us, Lord, to see that, yes, you are a servant leader, but you are a servant leader that transforms us because you confront us with our absolute need for your absolute grace. That you comfort us with your presence because you know how hard it is to be in this world. That, Lord, having created this world and everything in it, you want us to rediscover the beauty, the insanely inspiring beauty of this world because you're in it. For all this, Lord, we give you honor and glory and praise as we come to you in this moment of Eucharist, uh, Lord's Supper, Holy Communion.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the night that he was betrayed, in that final meal, John describes it beautifully in his gospel. Uh, Jesus took this unleavened bread. This was the symbolic bread of Passover. You don't have time to put leaven in it. You're leaving as soon as um, the night ends. So he took this bread and celebrating Passover with his disciples, he said, this is my body, actually. Not, not the lamb. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup later in that meal and having blessed it, uh, the cup of Elijah, the cup that nobody to this day touches at the Seder meal because that's only for when the Messiah returns. He took that cup said, this cup is my blood given for you. This is the new covenant in my sacrifice for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And do it until I return. So that's how we have this sacrament of Holy Communion that we constantly revisit. It's more than just a symbolic gesture, a tip of the hat to God. He somehow mysteriously, as only God can do, in this place, in these elements. He doesn't become these elements, but He's in these elements. This is just not a pointer to Him, it's somehow Him in us as we celebrate this. Try to figure that out. Better than trying to figure it out, simply receive it in His name. And so as you come to receive communion, and I ask the people who are serving communion to come forward, you'll hear words like this, this is Christ's body given for you, this is Christ's blood shed for you. And take one of these little packets, uh, take out the, uh, the bread first, uh, eat the little wafer, and then drink the juice. Um, we're looking forward to when we get back to doing the, the regular way of doing it, but until then we're, um, we're going to continue with these. But it doesn't matter because you're coming in the name of Jesus to receive his body and his blood on his terms. So Lord Jesus, once again we thank you for your absolute sacrifice that makes all things possible according to your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit transforms us, meets us in our places of doubt and discouragement, finds us in our places of incredible success and exhilaration. And Lord, you allow us to get the fullest experience so that we can learn the most of your love and your grace and your truth. That we can not only be blessed by you, but we can be a blessing in your name to others. Lord, we thank you and praise you that this is the incredible gift you have given us and continue to give us. Help us to receive it, not with ingratitude, but with gratitude. In your name we pray. Amen. Come whenever you're ready to receive Holy Communion.
without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From the throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt pray for you, and if you would uh, be willing to let us pray for you, go right out on the corner. 
the lovely prayer garden. There'll be people there who will say, how can I pray for you? Or would you like me to pray for you? If you don't want to talk about what you need prayer for, just say, pray for me. Or if you have a concern for somebody else or something else, or for yourself, just say, well, yeah, pray about this. It's very powerful <laughs> to have people pray for you. It's very simple, uh, but God works in wonderful ways when we allow others to pray for us uh, and pray for others in his name. Come back and have a great uh, brunch, fantastic out on that side of the campus. Uh, kids can run around and have fun. Uh, lots of good food to eat. Take just a few minutes to get to know some new people, say hi to them, and uh, let us know how we can help you take whatever is that next step for you, to receive Christ the Savior and Lord, uh, to take that next step in learning His ways and understanding His will, to being part of something that allows you to know others by name and story, and likewise they know your name and your story. Uh, we'd love to help you connect to this community or help you connect to a community beyond this community uh, if this isn't the one for you. We, you need to be in a relationship with people who are following Christ. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you because He loves you more than you can ask or even imagine. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with Him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great day.